So John chapter 15, I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in him, and if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Well, here we are at the final session. There's a great Methodist verse. Um, they love to quote, he that endures to the end will be saved. And um, thanks for enduring uh, thus far, right through to Sunday morning. Uh, it's been great to be together this weekend, hasn't it? Just some degree of normality and normal interaction. I think the main impact of the restrictions and the lockdowns that we experienced, certainly more severely in the early days of the lockdown, was that we were cut off from one another. We were told to stay at home, work from home, access to all normal community activities were totally forbidden. And that meant, as you know, churches were closed, schools were closed, places of employment were closed. We were totally on our own in a single household bubble. Anybody want to go back to that? Don't think so. And no wonder uh, so many of us felt isolated I think I have to say I miss church and I miss corporate worship more than I had ever imagined I would. I missed the connection with my friends and colleagues at work. And I missed really important things like Friday nights at Ravenhill. And those were just the the symptoms, the indicators of something that's part of who we are as human beings. We have an innate sense of connectedness. We have a desire to be part of something bigger. We know that we don't stand alone as individuals, but that we were designed and built to belong to something bigger and to something greater. And that's why we crave connectedness and we crave togetherness. We don't want to be isolated and alone. I think that's why we really enjoy events like this, uh, certainly corporate worship, when we stand with our sisters and brothers praising and worshipping God. Uh, We love that feeling of connectedness we get 
as we stand up for the Ulster men and sing our anthems together. And we love, especially I love the connectedness that comes whenever we sit around the table at home or in a restaurant enjoying the company of our family and friends and all the banter that goes on on those occasions. And sometimes I'm sitting there, I'm the object of most of the banter around our family <laughs> table. But you kind of say, this is great. You'd love this to go on forever. The theme of connectedness is one of the five points identified by a Dutch missiologist called J.H. Bavink. You've maybe heard of another Bavink, a very famous Dutch theologian called Herman Bavink. Well, this is his nephew. Uh, J.H. Bavink served uh, as a missionary in Indonesia for many years, and then he came back to Holland and he was professor uh, in the University in Holland. And he had a look at all the major religions in the world, the religions of the uh, Far East, the religions that he knew in Indonesia. And he argued that there are five fundamental things for which all human beings are searching and to which all of us are inevitably drawn as just like a magnet. Uh, and his work has recently been picked up by Dan Strange, our friend Dan, and developed in this wee book called Making Faith Magnetic. Uh, Bavink applied his five magnetic points to the religions of the world. Dan, he tries to apply them to contemporary secular people and to people in our own uh, modern world. And the first of those five magnetic points is what Bavink and Dan call totality. It's this basic desire to see our lives as part of a larger whole. It's the feeling we get when we have those experiences of connection, that together we're powerful, together we're significant, together we're a part of something greater and something bigger. We have meaning, we have a place, our lives really do matter because of this totality. And in this wee book, Dan offers us some examples of how this desire for totality, this desire for connectedness, works out in our society today. Facebook celebrated its one billionth user with an ad campaign that was entitled The Things That Connect Us. So online groups, social media, WhatsApp, our identities online are one way in which people look for a sense of identity and totality. They help us to feel connected to one another in a way which is safe and inclusive. And yet even at the same time, we can feel distanced and alone because it's virtual. It's not real. Uh, Heather Gage is here. Is Heather here? Yeah. She's gone. Heather's just back from Cambodia. And she was working in a school there with a, a good friend of mine called John Kennedy. John teaches maths. He used to teach maths in Banbridge Academy. And then he got married and he, he works now in Cambodia in an international Christian school there. So Heather gave me John's number. We've been kind of out of touch for a wee while. And I WhatsApped, managed to get some connection here. And I WhatsApp, WhatsApp John yesterday. And I was telling him what 
I was doing, you know, what we were doing this weekend, and he came back very strongly. He said, oh, that's great. He says, Stafford, keep doing that until you drop. Uh, because he says, we have used every online learning platform there is, and our kids are fed up looking at screens and fed up with this virtual reality, and there's nothing quite like the face-to-face stuff. Keep doing it. So that was John's message from Nom Penn to all of us here this weekend. Um, I'm very, thank- I'm very thankful to Heather for helping me make that connection. Uh, but we know that even online, whether it's WhatsApp or Facebook or whatever, it can be anything but safe and inclusive. If you say or post the wrong thing, you can be trolled, you can be abused, you can be publicly shamed. And the other example that Dan uses is the growth in people tracing their family history. Uh, the popularity of TV programs like Who Do You Think You Are, uh, where celebrities trace their family history because they want to know that they're part of something bigger. To know that they have got roots. To know that they belong. And Bavink says that this desire for being part of something bigger has entranced people all the way through human history. This is what he says. Ordinary human life is always broken, incomplete, insignificant, bungling and banal. As soon as a person approaches that secret border where they leave behind their own individuality and allow themselves to be engulfed by all that there is, they become great. That's where they experience divine reality. Not as something that exists outside themselves, but as something that throbs deep within. Well, we know, of course, that the Bible has a clear answer to this desire for totality and for connectedness. We were created by God for relationships, not only with creation in general, but with other human beings in particular. Being alone is not our natural state. Being alone wasn't good for Adam. And it's not good for us either. Genesis 1 and 2 make it clear that we were created with a purpose to make a home for ourselves together with others. And as God's image bearers, we are created to speak to one another. To work together to build a world. To work together to build a culture with others who share our loves and who share our desires. However, as we know, Something has gone terribly wrong. We crave connection. We crave relationship. But we're disconnected in so many ways. We're disconnected within ourselves so that we often don't even know who we are uh, and what makes us distinct as individuals. And we're disconnected from each other so that in our relationships we often feel misunderstood. We often feel isolated. We often feel very alone. We're disconnected from creation and from the natural world. We're making a huge mess of our planet. And we're really very confused about how we can use the natural resources of this world so that humankind, so that the whole planet can flourish and survive. And all of that disconnectedness is a result of the biggest disconnect of all. We're disconnected from our maker and our creator. We've turned our backs, we've run away from the one 
who gave us life. We have told lies about the only one who speaks the truth. We have placed our hope and our worship on things that don't deserve our worship, which can never deliver the identity, the meaning or the fulfillment that we crave. And that's where we need to have a really clear understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. He has come to bring us another reality. He has come to bring us another world where he is Lord and King. And when it comes to this desire for totality and connectedness, Jesus has something very important to say to us. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. The resolution of our desire to be connected comes as we are connected to Jesus Christ. Through Christ we enjoy connection and communion with God and also connection and communion with each other. If I'm connected to Jesus and if you are connected to Jesus, then in a very real way we're connected to each other. And the picture that Jesus uses to explain that connectedness is this one of the vine and the branches. Well, you know that the the picture of the vine and the branches is used extensively in the Old Testament for the people of God. That the men and women who first listened to Jesus talking about the vine were Jewish people who belonged to Israel, described in the Old Testament as the vine of God. If you have your Bible there, you might like to turn back to Psalm 80, just to have a, a quick look there. Uh, Psalm 80 at verse 8. Where the psalmist says to the Lord, Psalm 80 verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out branches to the sea and it shoot to the river. But Asaph, the psalmist, was struggling since the blessing no longer seemed to be resting on God's vine. So he says in verse 14, Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. So you can see how Asaph, the the psalmist, is reflecting on the fact that Israel didn't seem to be the vine, the fruitful vine that God had called her to be. Uh, The prophet Isaiah also composed a song of the vineyard. He described how the owner of the vineyard had come looking for it to yield grapes, but found that it only yielded wild grapes. Ezekiel too spoke of the vine that proved unfaithful. And now here comes Jesus 
claiming to be the true vine of God. That where Israel was a working model, Jesus was now the reality himself. Where Israel had proved false, Jesus was true. Where Israel had proved fruitless, Jesus was proving to be fruitful. So to belong to God's vine now means being united to Christ, the true vine. The old vine no longer provided the nourishment for them to grow and to be fruitful. The gardener had now grafted them into a new vine, into the true vine. And now in Christ, they would have all the resources, all that they would need in order to bear fruit. They had a new connection. So Jesus is the true vine. And in his person and work, he both subverts and fulfills the vine of Israel. Jesus flourishes and he brings flourishing to others in a way that Israel had failed to do. Our spiritual life then is resourced by our union with Christ. He's the source of our life. And we grow in grace as we understand and appreciate the connectedness and the union that we have with him. Being connected to the vine, being in it and staying attached to it is how a branch flourishes and how it is fruitful. But cut it off, it ceases to be a branch, it becomes a dead stick. And Jesus says that we remain in him by recognising our dependence on him, trusting his promises, throwing ourselves on his love. And this love, he says in verse 13 of this chapter 15, is a love in which he lays down his life for his friends. So as branches to the vine, we're connected to Jesus in the closest possible way, but without losing our individuality, without losing our responsibility. Remaining in Christ means the end of our search for totality. It means we can relax and rest in assurance that the most important of all connections, our connection to God, is confirmed and is sealed in our relationship with Jesus Christ. As Dan says in his book, we can be part of something bigger because we become part of someone bigger. Yes, we surrender our independence that's what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. But if we try to hold on to our so-called independence, then it really puts us in the same condition as a branch lying on the ground, unattached to the tree. It's never going to produce any fruit. It's never going to have any life. It's not going to have any of the resources it needs to be fruitful. It is dead. So let me try to unpack briefly this connection to Christ under two points. Number one, our privileges in being connected to Christ. And secondly, our responsibilities if we're going to stay connected to Christ. What, what are our privileges in being connected uh, to Christ? Well, firstly... Our connection to Christ means that we get a new identity, his identity, but without isolation. It's what theologians refer to 
as the doctrine of union with Christ. It's a very important, it's a key doctrine for understanding the Christian religion and the Christian life. So I'm telling my 25-year-old self, you need to understand this doctrine of union with Christ because it really is a key doctrine that will help you understand everything you need to know about growing as a Christian. And when Paul unpacks this doctrine of union with Christ, particularly in passages like Romans 6, he also uses a horticultural metaphor there. In baptism, we were baptized into the name of Christ so that baptism signifies union with Christ. But he goes on to say, if we're united to Christ, we must be united to him in his death and in his resurrection. And if that is the case, then important implications follow. If Jesus died to sin, if Jesus was raised to new life for God, then that means that we too must have died to sin with him and we have been raised with him to a new life of consecration to God. He puts it explicitly in Romans 6, 5. For if we've been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And that phrase, united with, is the horticultural term. It means planted together, which is how the King James Version translates it. It's derived from a verb which means to grow together. Uh, Paul is saying a Christian is someone who grows with Christ or has the congenital character of Christ in his death and resurrection. It describes who we are. Christ's death to sin, his resurrection to new life, are the defining aspects and privileges of our connection to Christ. It's what it means, as we were saying yesterday, it's what it means to be born again. We've got new defining features. We live in a new and a different world. And we need to understand and appreciate the full nature of our relationship in terms of our connection to Christ. Because, as I say, it's the key to making progress in the Christian life. And that's why Jesus takes a lot of time here in John 15 to explain carefully to his disciples what it means for them to be branches of the true vine. Uh, Note too how Paul takes a lot of time in Romans to unpack this same doctrine. And his punchline really comes in Romans 6 verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I have to tell you, even as I quote that verse, I'm taken back to whenever I was an 18-year-old. I was a teenager in the 1960s. Um, Well, lots of things happened in the 1960s. I know the words of every Beatles song that ever was, not because I ever learned them, because it was just the soundtrack of my life as a teenager. But at that time, uh, Banner of Truth began to publish the expository sermons of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on the book of Romans. And one of the first volumes they published uh, was the doctor's sermons on Romans 6. So I used to sit on a Sunday morning before I went to church reading this book. And I remember distinctly sitting beside the fire at home in Larne, reading the doctor's exposition of Romans 6.11. Likewise, indeed, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here I am, an 18-year-old teenager, struggling with sin, struggling with temptation, trying to understand what on earth does it mean to be a Christian. 
And that verse was absolutely mind-blowing for me. Because what Lloyd-Jones was saying is, here's your new identity. You are united to Christ. What's true of him is true of you. He has died to sin. And so have you. Sin doesn't have to have the final word in your life. And just as Jesus dies to sin, so you too, united to him, have left its power and its dominion behind. You've not yet been delivered from sin's presence, but you're no longer under the authority of sin. And it's not a goal that you're aiming for. This is the basic reality of your life. This is your new identity. And you need to live it out. You need to express it in your life. We have a new relationship both to sin and to God. Dead to sin and alive to God. So whenever temptation comes knocking at your door, you don't have to open it. Sin has no right to intimidate us. Sin has no right to control us. That's the truth we know. That's the truth we need to constantly consider. Reckon ye yourselves. Think about it this way. Do the sums. Come to the conclusion. Reckon this. And don't let anyone, and certainly don't let Satan, tell you that you can't resist and repel his advances. United to Christ, you're dead to sin, you're alive to God. Constantly consider it. Constantly reckon on this truth. And so we read and study again and again passages like Galatians 2.20 or Romans 6 or Colossians 3. We devote time and effort to understanding our new identity as people who are united to Christ. Here's our identity, knowing that union with Christ is the source of fruitfulness in our lives. But here's the second privilege our connection to Christ means that we benefit from the Father's pruning so that we become fruitful. I am the true vine, says Jesus, my Father is the vine dresser, verse 1. And how we think about God will determine a good deal about how we think about the Christian life. So the Old Testament describes in a very lavish way how God cared for his faithless vine, Israel. If he cared for that old vine, Israel... How much more does he care for the new true vine that he has planted in Christ? He shows patience, constancy, labouring for the fruitfulness of Christ and his people. And the interesting aspect of the vine dresser's activity that Jesus concentrates on here is in verse 2. This activity of pruning every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. And sometimes Christians are troubled by what it says here. Is it possible to be in the vine and then, as Jesus suggests, to be cut off? Can a Christian be cut off from Christ? Uh, if we think of the branches as grafts into the vine, you can imagine the gardener examining the vine to see whether the grafts have taken or not. The gardener will want to see if there's a real living connection that has been established between the graft and the vine. Uh, real union has taken place. And if the graft shows no sign of bearing fruit, there's no evidence of it being connected vitally to the vine, whatever the outward appearance might be, it'll be cut away and it'll be burned. It's receiving no life from the vine. 
It has no fruit-bearing potential. And the disciples don't know it yet, but Judas Iscariot was one such branch. He had just left the upper room to go to plot the betrayal of Jesus. But notice this, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. And the root meaning of that word to prune is to cleanse. And in the context, the cleansing that takes place is not by washing, which is the picture you have in John chapter 13, but it's by cutting and pruning. The Father's divine cutting has our inner cleansing in view. Leon Morris in his commentary explains the metaphor. Left to itself, he says, a vine will produce a good deal of unproductive growth. For maximum fruitfulness, extensive pruning is essential. This is a suggestive figure for the Christian life. The fruit of Christian service is never the result of allowing the natural energies and inclinations to run riot. Jesus tells his disciples they're already clean through the word. They've received the washing of forgiveness, but now they must receive the cleansing of pruning. So uh, I began my life doing biology and a bit of botany. And you know all this stuff, I'm sure, in the early years of a plant's life. The basic function of pruning is not to produce fruit immediately, but it's to prepare for future fruit. Good pruning creates the proper shape, the proper form in a plant so that it can produce and support quality fruit in the future. And it's the same spiritually. In the early stages of our Christian experience, God wants to lay good foundations that he can build on later. Distorted growth early on has the potential to warp the rest of our Christian lives. And sometimes we rather unwisely encourage new Christians to engage in public Christian activities very early in their walk with their Lord so that sometimes their spiritual growth becomes distorted and often their long-term fruitfulness is diminished. You'll notice how the Bible, in the Bible God takes his time in preparing individuals for public ministry. Sometimes he seems to be working far too slowly for their liking. But God has a long-term plan, a long-term program in view. And it may be you're at a stage now where you crave and you long for some aspect of, of Christian ministry and to be involved. But this could be your time of preparation. God's pruning you. God's preparing you for something into the future. He's getting you into the right shape so that in the long term you'll be really fruitful. Uh, Paul counseled Timothy not to place young Christians in spiritual danger by exposing them to the temptation of public position and the danger of pride. Think of the pruning process in Joseph's life before that impatient, self-centered young man was fit to bear fruit the way he did when he became a leader in Egypt. The pruning process takes 14 chapters in Genesis before Joseph is the right man in the right place, knowing how to do the right thing. And if we're not patient, then growth can be stunted. The fruit can be substandard. So the long-term goal with God is fruit-bearing. As the writer of Hebrews says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later 
It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, I don't know an awful lot about pruning vines. My father did once teach me a bit about pruning roses. Uh, He became the park superintendent in Larne. He had responsibility for all the parks, all the green spaces around the town. And there were beds of roses in various locations around the town. Um, Because my father had some experience in growing roses, neighbours and friends used to ask him to come and prune their roses in the spring and the autumn for them. It's a very interesting activity because it requires some degree of ruthlessness. If the plant's going going to produce beautiful blossoms in the summer, then there needs to be a lot of cutting back in the spring. And yet it needs to be done skillfully so that the buds will develop and bloom. The pruning needs to be adequate enough to remove all the dead, all the diseased wood, and yet not so severe that it kills and destroys the buds. So just a, a month ago, uh, beginning of November, I was over in London visiting my son Luke and uh, had never been. So we took Saturday afternoon and went out to Hampton Court Palace. Maybe some of you have been there. If you have, you'll know it's got the largest vine in the world at Hampton Court Palace. And I made a point of going. And if we had had some PowerPoint that I could have used here, I've shown you a picture of that largest vine in the world at Hampton Court Palace. And, and the interesting thing is when you look into the building where, they, um, where the vine is rooted, You'll see a piece of scaffolding and some ladders and all kinds of stuff lying over the floor. There's a lot of pruning going on on that large vine at Hampton Court Palace. The father, says Jesus, is a master vine dresser. And when he steps into our lives with the pruning knife in his hand, we need to understand that he knows exactly what he's doing. Pain, disappointments, sadnesses, deprivations all serve as his pruning secateurs. At times, his providence seems to cut deeply. But he knows that he intends that ultimately we'll grow strong to bear new fruit. He prunes with perfect skill. We may be tested, but not tested beyond what we can bear. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson says in reflecting on God's pruning activity in our lives, we should always remember two important principles. There are no accidents in the Christian life and there's no waste in the Christian life. When Jesus spoke of the Father's pruning, he was speaking from experience. He himself knew what it was to be pruned. He learned obedience Hebrew says, through the things that he suffered. And when he spoke these words in the upper room, he was on the brink of being pruned so severely that he would cry out. He would ask that he might be spared. And as the true vine was pruned, so we can expect that God will prune the branches as well. So whenever disappointment or difficulty, or sorrow cuts into our lives. Remember this, none of it's accidental, and none of it's wasteful. Our Heavenly Father holds the pruning knife, and we fix our eyes not on the blade, but on the hand that holds the knife. He is working in us so that we might bear fruit, Fruit 
that will last. Many of you know the story of Amy Carmichael, who came from this part of the world, who served as a missionary in India for more than 50 years. She saw and personally experienced much suffering. But reflecting on John 15, she says this. What prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves and the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp knife. But with a tried and trusted husbandman, there's not a random stroke in it at all. Nothing cut away which it would not, which it would not have been a loss to keep and again to lose. And so she prayed, rid me, good Lord, of every diverting thing. When the vine dresser uses his pruning knife, yeah, the effects can be sore, can be painful. And his ultimate purpose may be hidden. But remember this, he never makes a mistake. No cut is ever wasted. And ultimately, one of the privileges of our union with Christ is that God works in that kind of way in order to make us more fruitful. So that's a privilege. What about our responsibilities in being connected to Christ? How do we maintain this connectedness? Well, simply it's maintained and strengthened by his word. Jesus says, verse 3, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So they're already clean, but if the channels of their connection to Christ are to remain open and clean, if their prayer requests are to correspond to God's will, then the disciples must continue to make room for the word of Christ to work in them. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And there's a lot of stuff written and a lot of rubbish written about what it means to abide in Christ. And Christians will express all kinds of views and all kinds of opinions on that topic. But we need to stick closely to the text here. And the text says clearly that the way to abide in Christ is by letting his word abide in us. That's the theme we find elsewhere in the New Testament, Colossians 2. Paul writes about our union with Christ. So then as you have, you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. And how do we do that? He answers it in the next chapter. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And if you want to dwell in Christ and you want to remain connected to Christ, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So Sinclair puts it like this. Leave no room in your life unlocked or locked. Leave no cupboard door closed to it. Let it bring light into your mind. Let it warm your affections for Christ. Let it subdue your will to his. The word of Christ is the instrument of Christ. Used by the spirit of Christ to nurture union with Christ and to transform us into the image of Christ. So we maintain our connection to Christ, not by some kind of mystical experience that empties or evacuates our minds, but by our minds and our hearts being immersed in God's word. Jesus tells us in verse 11, he has spoken his word to us, back to the theme with which we began, so that his joy might be in us and so that our joy 
might be full. If you want your heart to be full of the joy of Christ, then fill your mind with the word of Christ. And there's no substitute, folks, for the dogged daily discipline of reading and meditating on the scriptures. One commentator says the Bible is the primary means by which God presents himself to us in such a way that we can know him and remain in a faithful relationship with him. John Newton put it like this. The chief means for attaining wisdom, he said, are the Holy Scriptures and prayer. The one is the fountain of living water and the other is the bucket which we are to draw. And when we say that we need to read and study and meditate on scripture, we automatically think we do that because the Bible teaches us what we are to do. And in obedience, we should go and do it. And that's correct and that's right. Obedience to the word of God is essential. But there's another sense in which the word does its own sanctifying work within us. Jesus says, you're clean because of the word I have spoken to you. In chapter 17, verse 17, he takes up the same thing. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So growth in holiness, staying connected to Christ, involves us in doing what God's word tells us. But even more fundamental than our doing God's word is what God's word is doing to us. The word is transformative. Paul rejoiced. That the Thessalonians had received the word of God, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Hebrews 4 says the word of God is alive and active, penetrating and healing like the surgeon's knife. That the word has a shaping, healing, transforming power. So the reason why we come to weekends like this And the reason why we expose ourselves to a regular ministry of the word of God is so that we may know God's work in our lives. If our fellowship, our union with Christ is going to bear fruit, then we need the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. And without that regular ministry of the word, we can grow weak and anemic and undernourished. Too many Christians are trying to survive on a starvation diet. And we need a good diet of biblical teaching and preaching if we're going to maintain this link with Christ and be fruitful. I need it in my life. You need it in yours. Here's my final thought. The importance of love growing and maturing among us as we stay connected to Jesus. Verses 9 to 12 of chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy might be full. And this is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Now, I don't know what you think. But on my own, I can't produce that kind of fruit, that kind of love, that quality of love by myself with my own resources. I find it very hard. But I know that united to Jesus, indwelt by his spirit, no longer being orphans, but having become his friend. This new, rich, agape love will be possible. And so Jesus is absolutely clear. 
as my friends, he says. I'm telling you, love one another just as I have loved you. And because of the grace of Christ, because of the power of his spirit working through the word, we can be magnificently loving. We can be wonderfully hospitable to those around us. And here's our calling, friends, as a church of Jesus Christ in a secular, fragmented, and increasingly confrontational society. We offer a connection. We offer a totality that people seek and that people crave. The sense of connection that we have at a football or a rugby match or at a stadium concert are nothing compared to the sense of connection offered by Christian worship and Christian fellowship. A genuine, diverse, loving church family is hugely attractive to people in our contemporary world. People who crave community. People who crave inclusion. And they don't know where to find it. You know, you think of all the pride stuff. And you think of all the promotion of LGBT plus issues. And you say, what lies behind all that? People want to be connected. They want to know they belong. They feel isolated. They feel lonely. It's not that we're endorsing everything in a pride parade or everything in the LGBT um, uh, agenda uh, in that way. But think of the individuals who are there and what they're looking for and what they're longing for. They're longing for genuine connection, genuine love. And how will all that happen? I think we can become witnesses, powerful witnesses in our community as we exhibit this wonderful love of Christ that's possible because of our connection to Jesus. And through discovering and applying this wonderful doctrine of union and communion with Christ, you and I can be transformed. Back in 1677, Henry Skugel published a little book called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. Skugel was Professor of Divinity at the University of Aberdeen. He died of TB at the age of 28. But he wrote this lengthy letter to a discouraged, discouraged friend, which actually became the book, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And in it he says, some Christians think we grow through purer behaviour. Others through sharper doctrine. Others through greater emotional experiences. But Skugel insists that the real change occurs through this reality. The life of God in the soul of man. Jeremiah Burroughs, great Puritan of the 17th century. He says, from Christ as from a fountain. Sanctification flows into the souls of the saints. Their sanctification comes not so much from their struggling and endeavours and vows and resolutions. As it comes flowing to them from their union with him. So here's my message to my 25 year old self. You're united to Christ. And by understanding all that that means, and by maintaining that connection, you'll grow and you'll mature as a Christian. And more than that, you'll bear witness to the truth 
and the reality of the gospel by the quality of your life and your love. Let's pray. Father, thank you that today we are united to Christ, our great and gracious Savior. Thank you, Lord, that his life, his power, is accessed as we maintain that link with him. And so I pray for my sisters and brothers here today. Dear Lord, please be at work in all our lives. Help us to understand just how important this connection is. And as we remain connected and linked and united with Christ, so may we be enabled to reach out to others and bring them to that place where they know the love the grace and the power of Christ at work in their lives. Lord, be gracious to us. Pardon our many sins, we pray, and keep us walking in faith with our Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen.